Open your Bibles with me, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles 18. May the Lord bless us to believe that He has revealed things to us and to our children that we may keep all the words of this law. May we remember to hear and do the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might build our houses on a rock. May we remember that it's not those who cry, Lord, Lord, in that day that shall be received into heaven, but those who did the will of our Father which is in heaven. The Bible has some things to say about marriage, and I want in one sermon to remind you as quickly and as efficiently as I can about marrying right. You want to marry Mr. Right? You want to marry Mrs. Wright, and the Bible tells you who Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright are, and that's R-I-G-H-T, and may the Lord help us to that end. Second Chronicles chapter 18 has the sorry story of King Jehoshaphat and his son Jehoram. Imagine King Jehoshaphat. He is one of the four great kings of the nation of Judah, David, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, And Josiah are the four great kings of Judah. King Jehoshaphat's one of them. The Lord loved him. He was a good man. His heart was good. But you know, he was in a nation church called Israel. And he was the king of Judah. And Ahab was the king of the ten tribes called Israel. Ahab and Jezebel had a a hot woman named Athaliah as a daughter. He had a son, Jehoram. They were basically cousins. Same nation. A lot of political benefits would result from the two children marrying. And so King Jehoshaphat allowed, encouraged, whatever he did, for his son Jehoram to marry Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. The Bible tells us this in other places, but it tells us in one verse, in one word, right here in 18.1. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance, and that's because God had blessed him, and joined affinity with Ahab. Affinity is a word that means intermarriage. He married his son, who was to be the future king of Judah, a descendant of David, an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised line of God's royal kings. He married that man to Athaliah. Baal-worshipping parents, a Baal-worshipping family, though part of the twelve tribes, and though part of God's kingdom on earth at that time, a woman he shouldn't have married. And it ruined his family, ruined his family tree. There are three kings missing in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8 in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those three kings are the descendants of this marital union. Because this good king married his good son to a bad woman and it corrupted that king. Jehoram was ruined by his relationship to Athaliah. Look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Let's look at a second illustration. If you were to continue reading in 2 Chronicles 18, you would have the event of Jehoshaphat joining Ahab in battle. Why did he join him in battle? Because he had connected his family to the family of Ahab by the marriage of his son you'll find that they engaged in some naval expeditions together. And God broke up their ships. God judged them. When he came back from having engaged in battle with Ahab, when he arrived home, there was Hanani the prophet to tell him, what in the world were you doing? Why have you loved those that God hates? 
Nevertheless, there are some good things found in thee. But God was angry at Jehoshaphat for marrying so poorly and marrying out of the Lord. In Nehemiah chapter 13, which my father used the first thing this morning with the men that gathered to pray in the back room, he mentioned four things that Nehemiah did to try to preserve the church or the state of Israel after being recovered from Babylonia. But the fourth one of those was the marriages that were taking place. In verse 23 of Nehemiah 13, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. They had mixed up the families of God. They were marrying out of the Lord. This is a this is a group of people that had come back from Babylon after having been captive there for 70 years. You would think that God might have gotten through to them to be careful about not marrying the pagans around them. But no, here they come back and they marry the pagans. Now how upset should a pastor get when his people allow their children to marry out of the Lord? Let's find out how upset Nehemiah got. Verse 25 will tell us, And I contended with them. That's a polite word for I fought with them. I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. That is what a godly minister does when children are allowed to marry outside of the Lord. If you are going to make the decision to have a child, you have committed yourself, if you're a Christian and if you're a worshiper of God, that you will protect that child and you will guide that child so that they only marry in the Lord. Otherwise, what have you done by creating a worldling? What have you done by creating someone, forming someone by God's blessing to marry an unbeliever? This is an important matter in God's religion. Why did God send the flood according to Genesis chapter 6? Because the sons of God saw the daughters of men and married them. And so he drowned the earth with a flood. Look at Nehemiah reasoning with these Jews in Nehemiah 13, 26. Did not Solomon... This is him still contending with these Jews that had married those of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God. Solomon's other name was Jedidiah. Beloved of the Lord. God loved Solomon. And he was beloved of his God. And Nehemiah is bringing up these things they knew about King Solomon. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, Even him did outlandish women cause to sin. In the Proverbs commentaries that we send out from our church around the whole world to 230 nations of the earth, I get responses back when we write about Solomon's wisdom about marriage, that you shouldn't marry an odious woman, and you shouldn't marry a whorish woman, and you should marry the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. People will write me and say, why didn't Solomon keep his own advice? That's what Nehemiah is saying. It is so important to only marry the right woman because even a man beloved of God, even a man with great wisdom and understanding like Solomon can be ruined by the wrong wife. 
before God appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what can I do for you? And Solomon gave the wonderful answer. Do you know that he'd already set the stage for his ruin? He had married Pharaoh's daughter. You say, well, I'll bet she was a looker. I'll bet she was a looker too. What does that have to do with anything? Right. Well, I'll bet he thought that she understood him. I've heard that one too. She just understands me. Have you ever heard a child say that? Yes. Listen, the person foolish enough to even use that terminology doesn't understand themselves, right. let alone that someone else understands them. Children can't understand children. It's just ridiculous the reasoning process that people go through to try to justify another human soul that they want to marry and connect with for the rest of their lives. And it's our job as parents and pastor and friends and brothers in an assembly to keep our children from doing anything like that. Listen, the God of heaven is the one that invented love. The God of heaven is the one that invented marriage. And the God of heaven invented sex. The God of heaven that wrote this Bible, that revealed things to us and to our children, knows more about love, marriage, and sex than any group of men that you can put together and square. You'll never know as much as the God of heaven. He wants to maximize love in your life. He wants to maximize marriage. He wants to maximize sex because he invented those things. And if we don't do it his way, like Jerry tried to remind us just a few minutes ago, we're going to lose. If you want to win, you do it God's way. I don't care about the feelings bubbling inside you. I don't care that your stomach turns upside down. I don't care that you think they're attractive. I don't care that you think they understand you. I don't care that we just, we're just compatible. Does, does that mean that you order the same things on your pizza? What do you mean? The only compatibility we care about is... This is the Word of God, and this is how we're going to live. And the God of this Bible is my God, and the things that this God has said that I should think about every subject on the planet is how we're going to think about every subject on the planet. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That is compatibility. Don't use that C word with me. That's compatibility. That's the only compatibility that counts. You don't know anything about compatibility. You've never lived with a spouse, you young people. I love you very much. I want every one of you to have happy, fulfilled, maximized marriages. But there's only one way to do it, and it's this way. It's not Jonathan Crosby's way. It's this way. God in His grace. God in His abundant grace and overseeing and overruling providence kept me from marrying any girl of my choice and gave me a great wife. And that story is long and detailed and hardly anyone knows it in this assembly except maybe my brother a little tiny bit and maybe my father a little tiny bit. My children don't know it. And God is very gracious and I love him dearly. I love him dearly for it and I want all of you children to have the same thing. Listen, we can't have an exhaustive study of this subject. I just want you to think about Jehoshaphat and that's for parents. I want you to think about Solomon. That's for all of us. Solomon, though so wise, though so beloved of God, made horrible decisions, and it ruined his life. And I don't want any of you to ruin your lives. If you're married and you're thinking, well, I can just doze out on this one, you're totally wrong. If you're married, you can pray and prepare for grandchildren. Or children. If you're married, you can surely help other parents and children in this church. If you're already married, then be thankful for your godly spouse. If you're already married, then be the perfect godly spouse that I'm going to mention in this sermon. If you're already married, then help your spouse become the perfect spouse if they're not the perfect spouse already. There's lots you can do with this subject even if you're married. If if your children are already married and they're out of the house and it's too late for them, 
then pray for your grandchildren, which will be their children. Pray for the rest of this church. Let's assault the God of heaven. Let's do some wrestling with Him. Let's be continuing instant in prayer, for this is one of the greatest things that we can pray for. For the future prosperity and health of our church is that our children marry high in the Lord. High in the Lord. That's H-I-G-H. As high as we can reach in the Lord. That's what you want to reach for. The Word of God rightly understood and appreciated is by far the greatest manual on marriage, love, sex that we can ever find. The consequences of compromise in this issue are so painful and they're so far-reaching. They corrupt family trees. You know, you've all, you've heard me describe marriage as a 50 year decision, but it's not a, it, you might, you might be married for 65 years. As I was reminded at break time. So it could be a 65 year decision, but you know what? It's generational. You marry the wrong person, you're going to corrupt a whole family tree. And God, God gave us a little warning by taking three kings, though they were the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ, and though they belonged in Matthew chapter one, and he just pulled them right out and said, nope, they are not good enough. So I'm going to have a great-great-great-grandfather begetting a son, even though there's three kings missing in between them in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8, because King Jehoshaphat let his son marry a bad woman. Right. And the, the havoc that was wrecked in that family is unbelievable. Jehoram, with the influence of Athaliah, killed all his brothers so he would have no competitors. What did Athaliah do? killed all of her grandseed. She killed all the seed royal. She killed all the babies that were in the family line of the kings of Judah, except one was hidden away in the temple. His name was Joash. Where did all that come from? Marrying the wrong woman. Right. Parents are fully responsible to keep their children from involvement with less than the best spouses for them. Since you're at Nehemiah 13, let's look at verse 25. The last half of the verse. Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons. Notice, who is that addressed to? Children or parents? Parents. Parents. Parents are in charge of who children marry. This whole world, and Hollywood especially, wants to present a gospel to us, a message to us, rules to us, that children ought to follow their hearts. That... When two young people, I don't care if they're 16 or 26, if they haven't been married and they're, and they're those ages, they're still not even adults. Adults in the Bible are 30. But if they're 16 and 26 and they're in love, Hollywood and everything is teaching us today that they should follow their hearts. And the parent that would say no to love is just an ogre, is just an out-of-touch Neanderthal, anachronistic caveman who doesn't have a clue about happiness in life. And that is just sold in movie after movie after movie. I can remember 25 years ago or so, there was a movie called Man from Snowy River. And I remember hearing all the good and wonderful things about Man from Snowy River, but the whole story of Man from Snowy River is a man with his daughter not wanting that daughter to marry a cowboy. And if a man has a proper daughter, he wouldn't want his daughter to marry a cowboy. And if a man has a daughter, he has a right to say she can't marry a cowboy. That's a father's prerogative. But they fell in love. But you know, love in that movie and love in every Hollywood movie is nothing but another L word for lust. It's not real love. Real love in the Bible is this. Real love is I want to help another person be able to stand before God in confidence without any sin and not be ashamed at him and his coming. That's love. 
There is nothing like that in any Hollywood movie. Real love is not what you get. Real love is not the warm feelings you get. Real love is not the sexual response you get from another person. Real love is care for them and desire for them to be great in the sight of the Lord. That's love. So everything's against me. So I'm loud. So I'm intense. And the Bible's intense. Because the world's against us. But we're going to marry in the Lord. Why am I preaching on this? Don't any of you think about any circumstances in this church or anywhere else? Because I'm going to tell you the two, the two reasons that I was pushed over the edge of the cliff to preach on it right now. Number one, I had a lengthy exchange with a man from another country. Don't even know what country. But it was this week. Number two, I have just had to spend some time with another family. And I get to see the grace of God separating when two believers are together and the rest are not. Unbelievable. And I am on the war path because I want to save all of you from any of that disaster. The, the divorces and the dysfunction and the trouble and the pain and the mess and the confusion is, is unbelievable. And it's all around us now because right. everyone, every, everyone practically is living that way because Hollywood is selling us that kind of a lifestyle. You don't stick with the one you marry. They don't even know what it means. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Because what God joined together was a man and a woman, not two men or not two women. They've totally corrupted the way of God on the earth. But we're going to stick with it. God has revealed to us things for us and for our children, and let's do it. And this is an important one. It's taught in both Testaments. It's of great importance. And it has great consequences. Lord, help us. Love has so little or nothing to do with this issue at all. Most youthful love is only lust. When it said that Jacob loved Rachel and he served seven years for, (laughs) he had to get a hold of her. Be real. You don't learn about real love until you're in a church of God and you're married to somebody and then you slow down a little bit and think about what it really means to love someone. And you know, her father didn't know anything about love either because her father gave Jacob Leah before he gave her Rachel. Real love occurs after marriage. Real love is something you have to learn. And real love, real love is not those puppy dog feelings. Real love is not the movements of your stomach or your heart. Real love is not That infatuation, real love is not a sexual response. Real love is something that you have to do. You have to learn to work at. Real love is caring about another person and giving to them. You know, when you're young, of course you'll give to the other spouse because you're expecting something in return. And that tit for tat is not love. Lord, help us to understand the difference. God created all these things and He knows best. Parents and children, short-term grief of having to say no to one of your children, no, you can't have a relationship with that person. That person isn't good enough for you. You can't have a relationship with them. The short-term grief of doing that. Now, if you let it go too far, it's going to be longer-term grief. But if you are vigilant as a parent, then it's only going to be short-term grief. That short-term grief is worth it for long-term happiness. Because that short-term grief, if it's a week long, if it's a month long, I don't care if it's a year long, it's still shorter than 50 years of married to the wrong person and begetting children from the wrong person, which means you have corrupted a whole family tree. So that short-term grief, you've got to be willing to take that pill and swallow it as a parent. You say, well, it's going to disrupt my relationship with my child. Of course it's going to disrupt your relationship with your child for a while, maybe, if they don't fear the Lord. If they fear the Lord, and they trust the Bible, and they love the God of the Bible, and they love the inventor of love, sex, and marriage, instead of guys like Elton John and Whitney Houston, one a sodomite, one a drug addict, that want to write about love and sing about love and don't know anything about love, 
But if they want to trust the Bible, then they're going to trust their parents. Just remember, children, your parents have been married and living together with a spouse longer than you've been alive. Now, how do we compare that level of knowledge about marriage? How do, how, do we, how do I make the comparison? Is it two to one? Is it two million to one? Is it infinity to zero? The null set. How do we compare? Trust them. And trust the Lord God of heaven who gave us this word. You know, we picked on Jehoshaphat, but can you see the marital faults of Abraham? Did Abraham make some mistakes in his marriage? What in the world did he marry Hagar for? Jacob? What did he marry four women for? Judah? What did he marry a Canaanite for? If you know your Bible, you know the problems that came in these relationships. What about David? Did all those sons of his wanting to kill each other just come about because they played too many violent video games? Or did his sons wanting to kill each other because they came from different wives? How about Solomon? It's a sin to marry outside the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We understand in the Lord to mean serving the Lord Jesus Christ according to the full doctrine of our church, which requires membership here in this church or in a very similar church holding the same doctrine and practice. If you don't make in the Lord to be that restrictive, then I'm going to ask you this question. Are Roman Catholics in the Lord? No. They're not in the Lord. On what basis are they not in the Lord? Well, I just don't think that's good enough to be... No, you need to... Show me some Bible. Show me that God says that Roman Catholics aren't good enough, but Mormon, are Mormons good enough? Are Lutherans good enough? Are Presbyterians good enough? Is it good enough if you're a Baptist to marry a Presbyterian that loves the Lord Jesus Christ when the Presbyterian takes your little child and wants to have it sprinkled? Is that in the Lord? Is that marrying in the Lord? Is that going to get rid of all your doctrinal problems because you married a Presbyterian that preaches a watered-down Arminian concept of election? They're not going to use the same Bible. They're going to have a different church government. They're going to believe in eternal sonship. They're going to believe in a state church if they could ever have their way. And they're going to baptize your children differently. You're not in the Lord yet. You're way off in left field. You know, the Lord's shown us certain things. What the Lord showed Nehemiah, Nehemiah expected those people to marry like-minded people. Why would you, How can two walk together except they be agreed? That's a, that's a rule of the Bible, Amos chapter 3. How can two people walk together except they be agreed? Well, then you need to be in agreement. About what? About everything that's involved in being in the Lord. In the Lord Jesus Christ and in His service. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. A widow may marry any man that she wants, is what the verse is teaching. Only in the Lord. Verse 39, that is like in the Garden of Eden when God said to Adam, Thou mayest freely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. So there's all the trees that he could eat of, but he couldn't eat of that one tree. Paul said she is at liberty to marry whomever she will, but it's got to be in the Lord. It's got to be in the Lord. Look at chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, 
neither the woman without the man. It's good for to get married. In the Lord. Notice, in the Lord. That little prepositional phrase, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. In the Lord. It's good for a man to marry a woman. It's good for a woman to marry a man. In the Lord. That's the modifying descriptive prepositional phrase here telling us that they're both in the Lord. Then it's a good thing for a man and a woman to get together. We understand in the Lord to mean serving the Lord Jesus Christ according to the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just saying, I'm a Christian. If you were to walk down Main Street in our little city today, and you were to walk up to people and say, are you a Christian? Yes. Yes. You know, they'd say they were Christians. But in the Lord has to mean a whole lot more than that. It's treated a whole lot more than that for the other relationships of the New Testament, like church membership and like sitting at the same communion table. In the Lord means a whole lot more than just, yeah, I'm a Christian. Everyone says they're a Christian. But you know, we live in a day where the word Christian is watered down so much that it doesn't mean anything anymore. We're, we live in the perilous times of the last days. They, they say we're Christians, but they're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They say we're Christians, but they only have a form of godliness. They say we're Christians, but they will not endure sound doctrine. They want praise bands and entertainment and casual worship and Starbucks coffee and flip-flops when they go to church because that's all they can handle, and they can only handle that for a few minutes. It's just a change. And so we want to marry in the Lord, and we're defining that the way the Bible defines us as to how we should live in the Lord. We're just defining that for those that we want to marry so that we're compatible. So that we love the Word of God, we love all the Word of God, we hate the perilous times, we love reverent worship, we love sober worship, we love sound doctrine, we love sound practice. We want to follow the due order in everything in the Bible. And if you don't marry that way, there's going to be conflict in your marriage because you haven't married in the Lord. Right. If you want to hear a whole lot more on that subject, you can go back to the year 2000 and look for the sermon entitled Marriage in the Lord. Okay. So we first of all marry in the Lord. I'm going to give you seven little things to think about. You know, there's a whole long list, and Brother Matthew has automated that long list on our website. It's called Who Can Find a Virtuous Woman? And it will give you a scorecard, and it tallies up the score for you. That's the genius of our webmaster. So that when you get to the end, it's going to give you a point total. And you can take three girls and compare them side by side and just click in the numbers with your little mousey. And it'll give you a number at the bottom, and it'll tell you who the virtuous woman is of the three that you just graded. And you girls, looking for one good man. Oh, yeah. You have the same little chart that's on our website. Go to our our website's homepage. Click Bible Topics. Under Bible Topics, it'll have a picture there of two people getting married under Practical Life. Practical Life under Bible Topics. And uh, you can measure guys the same way. Good parents are going to be talking to their children from about this size up about what it means to be a good husband or a good wife. Just always talking about the different character traits that you want to look for in a person that you're going to marry. And of course you start out with in the Lord. Then you go to this one. Number two, the fear of the Lord. Look at Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. I want to bless God for the little bit of light He's given us in the book of Proverbs. This man wrote me, and wanted to know how he should pick a wife. I sent him back a little tiny four-page commentary on Proverbs 31.30. It lit him up. He had posted it on his Facebook account in some other country in 18... Listen, he wrote me back within an hour. I was still trying to figure out how he did it all, but 18 people had already read it among his friends. 
he, he was so worked up about Proverbs 31.30. There have men that have, that have gone before us that were probably a thousand times better than I am as a man, as a Christian man, and I'm thinking of the greatest Baptist theologian the world's ever produced that, that put his commentary on Scripture in print, and I'm not even going to name his name because I don't want to do that to save him shame. But when it comes to Proverbs 31.30, he spiritualizes the entire verse away. It is, it is horrifying to read it. It's horrifying to read it. That verse is not to be spiritualized away. That is the qualification for picking a wife by a foolproof measure. This is wonderful, practical advice. And it's written by a woman to her son on how to pick a wife. Favor is deceitful. Son, favor is deceitful. Her doing nice things for you doesn't prove character at all. Son, favor lies. Son, her kindness is lying. She's so nice. He, it's lying. Favor is deceitful. And beauty is vain. Son, don't get distracted by what your eyes see. Son, measure her by something far more important than that. She might have a beautiful exterior and have a very corrupt interior. Son, that beauty is going to decay. Son, that, that beauty is a burden. That beauty is high maintenance. She's going to flirt. Other men are going to be attracted to her. If she's beautiful, she's going to, she's going to make you think that she's doing you a favor whenever she lets you touch her beauty. Son, don't do it. Beauty is vain. It's not the measure of character. Son, my son, you say, why do you get so emphatic and, and uh, dramatic about the Word of God? Okay, I'll, I'll answer you this, this time. It's in verse 2 of chapter 31. This is the mother. This is the mother so that you can get the feelings that I'm trying to convey to all of you. Amen. What, my son, and what, the son of my womb, and what, the son of my vows? Listen to a mother. She wants to save her son from trouble. And how is she going to save her son from trouble? She's going to save him from whorish women, verses 3 and 4. She's going to save him from alcohol and overdrinking, verses 6 and 7. She's going to save him from a bad wife, verses 10 through 31. So this is a woman, and she's very gripped by it because it's so important. In verse 30, favor is deceitful, my son, and beauty is vain. It is empty and worthless. How can I tell young men that? If you were listening very carefully, I just gave you a list of between five and seven things that a beautiful woman will cost you. If you want to see me in private, I'll expand that to 20, and you know I will not hold back any punches, any words. I can't say it here. Any young man can contact me at any time, and I will speak to you very plainly that to marry an average woman that fears the Lord, she will outshine and outperform a beautiful woman that doesn't fear the Lord right. every time and make you far happier. And I will give you all the reasons. And I will tell you stories about men who tried it the other way. In the Bible and out of the Bible. This is wonderful advice. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible about how to marry. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You say, well, what if she's not a great looker? She shall be praised. What if she isn't very socially adept? She shall be praised because she fears the Lord. She's going to be submissive. She's going to be reverent. She's going to be godly. She's going to be chaste. She is going to...
practice exactly what the Bible teaches. She's going to know that she doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband has it. She is never going to defraud her husband. She is never going to be disrespectful to her husband because she fears the Lord. Listen, God invented love, marriage, and sex. So what kind of a woman do you want to marry? A woman that fears the Lord and is the wife the way God says a wife should be. What kind of a man should you marry, young ladies? This kind of a man, although this verse is written to guys about girls, you can go to Psalm 112 and find the same character being described in Psalm 112, the man that fears the Lord. That's the man you want to grab a hold of his coattails. And by whatever means, even if it means going to the summer threshing floor and crawling in there after midnight and cuddling up to his feet and saying, will you marry me? I know that's a little extreme, but I'm not altogether jesting. Because that's what Ruth did. And she got herself a Boaz, and she got herself a four-chapter book that's in the Bible. The fear of the Lord. Every church member should independently fear the Lord, but they all don't, so you've got to look for something more than just being a church member and agreeing to the things of doctrine that we agree to. The first one is marrying in the Lord. Someone in our church or someone in a church that's like ours. Number two is the independent fear of the Lord. I know I've used these words many times, but here today is for me to explain them again. Independent fear of the Lord. See, it's the fear of the Lord right here in Proverbs 31.30. But a woman that feareth the Lord. That fear of God is a reverential respect and desire and love for Him to never displease Him and to always do what He wants in every part of her life. That's what it means to fear the Lord. She loves God. She respects God. She wants to reverence and worship God with every part of her life from the inside and out, including sex, love, and marriage. She is willing to sacrifice anything to please her God. That's the fear of the Lord. It's an independent fear of the Lord. When I use, and I've used this for decades, an independent fear of the Lord, and that word independent is very important. The word independent means the woman or the guy has it with or without you. You mean nothing to them relative to their fear of the Lord. Independent means they have it on their own. It is already inside them before they met you, and it will be inside them after they break up with you because they aren't going to change because the most important relationship in their life is their fear of God. That is what it means by independent. I don't want to elaborate with stories because they take too long when I tell them. But, you know, because a person wants to get baptized, because a person wants to join our church, that isn't proof that they fear the Lord. There's so much other, so many other things that we want to look at as to whether a person fears the Lord or not. If you want to know, well, what are those things, go to the little magnifying glass on the homepage of our website and type in the fear of the Lord, and you can read an extensive, thorough, maybe exhaustive, or close to a document about what the fear of the Lord means. You know, you can test the fear of the Lord so easily by just asking a person what they believe about different things that the Bible teaches. And show them the Bible. Well, here's what it says about this. Do you agree? And if a woman doesn't, then she doesn't. She doesn't fear the Lord. Well, what if she says, can I think about it? Well, that's a wise woman. She should quote Proverbs 15, 28 to you, that a wise woman studieth to understand. 15, 28, so that she can have time to think about it, but she's, she's going to want to bring all of her thoughts back to the Bible. That independent is so important. When you go do nice things for a guy or a girl and then they come to church with you and you sit next to each other and you open the Bible together and you sing together and see, he fears the Lord. Or see, she fears the Lord. That's not independence. You haven't proven any fear of the Lord at all yet. All you've proven is that they like you. 
that you like them. That's why they're in church. You haven't proven their fear of the Lord yet. Okay, what, is, what do we mean by the fear of the Lord? And you know, it's on our website, but hear these few words. These are a bunch of adjectives, synonyms, and so forth, and descriptive phrases. I hope that it just might give you a feel for what we mean by the fear of the Lord that's taught in the pages of Scripture. See, since you're in the book of Proverbs, look at Proverbs chapter 8, and I'll give you one example of how the Lord defines the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. When you get a woman that fears the Lord, or you get a man that fears the Lord, what kind of a wife is she going to be? The perfect wife. God's plan for a wife. What kind of a husband is he going to be? The perfect husband. To the degree he fears the Lord, he is going to model his life after what the Bible describes a man should do, and a husband should do, and a father should do. When you marry someone that fears the Lord, you have the greatest leverage you will ever have. Love is not leverage. Because whenever you have a spat with your spouse, love kind of leaves. That's why it's called a spat. You're having a fight with your spouse and love leaves. So you can't say, but you told me you loved me, so do it my way. When they're already fighting mad, they're going to punch you if you say something stupid like that. But you know, when you marry someone that fears the Lord and there's a little spat, and because we're all sinners, those spats are going to come up. Do you know that even a wife, in the, in the appropriate way, at the appropriate time, can either write him a little note or say something very respectfully, My Lord, will you consider this verse of Scripture about this matter? And you hear, ching, you know, he's in handcuffs. And he's bending over looking at it. You know, I get to hear this. I heard a man preach once. <laughs> Amen. That's because you're married in the Lord. Right. A husband can sit down with his wife and say, there's something wrong in our marriage, and you know, you're going to ask something very personal of her. Something, whatever. Very personal. And you know, it's, it's, it's caused some stress in your marriage, and you can sit down with her, and say, wife, we agreed in the beginning that we were going to base our marriage on the Bible. Here's what the Bible has to say. I've been wrong for not bringing this to your attention sooner, and I haven't been the leader that I should have been. You've been wrong for not complying with what the Scripture expects of you. It's written up in both of our marriage covenants that we signed before witnesses and the holy elect angels of God. Will you work through this with me? And can let, Let's do it the right way. Let's have a Christian marriage in every way, including this way. Are you with me, wife? She starts crying. She says she's sorry that she hasn't been the Christian wife that she should be because she fears the Lord and the Word of God's been brought to bear on her. That's how This is how a marriage is supposed to work. Right. But it doesn't work this way if you don't marry somebody that has an independent fear of the Lord. They love the Lord. They love the Lord like Zach was describing this morning from Psalm 42. They're panting after Him. And so when, when they come in and they hear a sermon that involves marriage, or they go to a woman's meeting, if it's a woman, or if it's a man, he comes to a man's meeting, and either my wife or I are doing your dirty work for you and bringing up things that you ought to, that, that the spouses ought to be doing better because they fear the Lord, they go home convicted. And, and then everything works. So you marry in the fear of the Lord, you have parents that fear the Lord, you marry into a family by God's grace, and in most cases it's true, that fears the Lord, you're in a church where the whole counsel of God is preached, that's all you need for a perfect marriage. Because it'll all work out if you if you start out with the fear of the Lord and the Word of God being applied 
to your lives. What is the fear of the Lord? It is proven love of God by action and reputation. Proven love of God by action and reputation. There's no words in there at all. Trust in Scripture. Total trust in Scripture. Delight in the Lord. This is a person that delights in God and pants after Him. It is love of truth. Love of truth. Craves truth. Wants to study for truth. That shows the fear of the Lord. It is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a person that wants to walk with Jesus Christ and love Him and serve Him and follow Him. It is zeal for the worship of God. It is complete conversion. It is hatred of sin and the world. There, I'm partway through my list. But you're in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. Let me show it to you. How the Lord defines it. Then I'll continue my list. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See, the fear of the Lord is not singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. It's not coming to church. It's not holding a hymnal together with you. Isn't that tender? You're already compromising while you're sitting in here, getting that close to a person while you think you're worshiping God. What does it say? What is the fear of the Lord? Look it. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Does this person hate sin? Does this person hate Hollywood? Does this person hate the world? Because that's all Hollywood has is sin. That's all the world has is sin. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This person is going to hate bad. It's going to hate, she's going to hate sin. He's going to hate sin. The fear of the Lord hates evil. Evil talking, evil jesting, evil acting, evil dressing, sex out of its proper place and order. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. And that's Lady Wisdom speaking in Proverbs 8. See, there's a verse that helps us get a handle on what it means to fear the Lord. It's to hate sin and to love God. It's to love righteousness. It's to crave truth. It's to pan after the Lord Jesus Christ and hate the things of this world. And you say to me, but you're describing a really spiritually minded Christian. We have made progress. I I can almost quit. That's exactly right. That is what you want to marry because that woman or that man is going to love you and love your children and share love with you and share life with you and have sex with you and make love with you like no one else will be able to. Give me an average looking woman that is like what I'm describing right now and the beauty that will shine in her countenance and through her eyes and in her actions and in her speech will crush the haughty arrogance of a woman that might have prettier skin. The woman with prettier skin that doesn't fear God, Solomon, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants you to imagine a 2,000-pound, hairy, sweating, stinking, mud-caked, and you know what the mud's made from when it's a pig, don't you? A 2,000-pound pig with a gold ring in its nose. It's Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16. Or verse 22. It's verse 22. As a jewel of gold and a swine snout, so is a fair woman which was without discretion. So you have found yourself a beautiful woman. Here's what Solomon said. And Solomon knows more about beautiful woman than you'll ever know. understand. Solomon said when you find her, okay, you've got yourself the little piece of gold. Look at it. Polish it up a little bit. But don't forget that 
there's a 2,000-pound hairy, stinking, mud-cake pig wearing it. Because that's a woman that doesn't fear the Lord. Though she has a tiny little bit of gold attached to her in a ring nose. This isn't Jonathan Crosby, but I'll tell you one thing. Jonathan Crosby loves this Bible. I love this Bible. I love verses like that. I am... Forget my dramaticism or anything like that. This is God being dramatic. Through the King Solomon by the Holy Spirit. That is what God thinks of what you think is important. You bring to me a list of what good looks are going to do for you. And I will make a list ten times as long that you will agree to when I'm done. I was honest and you're a liar of what looks will cost you. If she doesn't fear the Lord, give me an average woman that fears the Lord and the beauty that will shine through her actions for you from the day you marry her until the day you die. Her faithfulness in worshiping with you, her love, her loyalty will crush looks. The fear of the Lord. It's the willingness to learn and change so that your life matches what God wants it to be. It is confidence of eternal life. It is being baptized. It is living by faith. It is loving, strong preaching. Because the Bible tells us to love strong preaching. But we live in a generation where they will no longer endure sound doctrine. But they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears because they want their lust scratched. It is no fear of peers. A person that fears the Lord couldn't care less what everyone else their age thinks of them because all that matters to them is what God thinks of them and their parents think. It fully honors their parents loves to pray, and will initiate prayer. You don't have to tell them to pray. They're already praying. They live a holy life. They despise man's wisdom. They're spiritually minded. They hate false ways. They hate false doctrine. They're humble before God and men. They crave being taught. They just want to learn more so that they can do more of God's perfect will in their life. They're evangelistic because they want to tell others about the truth of the Bible. They initiate spiritual conversation. They don't just follow They're wise. They're intolerant of sin anywhere, including in you. That's just a little description of the fear of the Lord. And if you if you find someone like that, get a contract with them as fast as you can. Everything's going to work out. The God of heaven's going to be smiling on that house. And if I could draw, you know, almost a little cartoon for your minds to envision sun rays coming down from the God of heaven on that house, and you've attached yourself to that person, your life is going to be blessed. Because the Bible says, the woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You're going to be praising her because she has that kind of character. That kind of character is going to turn to fulfill everything God ever expected, ever planned, ever designed for marriage to give a man. Oh, Delilah was beautiful. You say, well, I'm smarter than marrying a Delilah. We'll see. You marry for looks, you're going to end up with a Delilah. Number three. Now, there's so much more that could be said about the fear of God, but I've said enough. Number three is virtuous. Virtuous is a word that we don't understand very well and we don't know very well. Ruth was a virtuous woman. Boaz said she was in Ruth 3.11. Look at Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 4 since we're nearby. Proverbs 12.4, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Oh, don't you want to... Anybody in here want to be a king? Any of you men that I call princes? All you young men between 25 and 40 that I call princes because of the Bible's name for young men and the pillars and the um, patriarchs. You princes, do you want to be king? Do you want to be king? Do you want to get crowned? 
Well, you need somebody else. You need a woman that fears the Lord. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. She'll make you great. You know, in Proverbs chapter 31, it tells us that the husband of that woman in Proverbs 31 sits in the gates of the city. He has an honorable name because he has a great woman that takes care of everything at home. You get your little beautiful woman, she's going to want to be out shopping. She ain't going to be she ain't going to want to be home making your estate for you while you become an important person. Virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, that she that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. That's the choice. This this is God's words. This is God who knows more about women, knows more about love, marriage, and sex than anyone else. This is what he says right here. You better marry a virtuous woman. What does virtuous mean? Virtuous is acting with moral rectitude or in conformity with moral laws. It's free from vice, immorality, or wickedness. It is good, just, and righteous. For a This is a modest woman. This is a careful woman. This is a chaste girl. This is an honest girl. She loves her mommy and daddy. She still kisses her mommy and daddy. Because she's just a pure, virtuous, chaste young lady. And you can just make the opposite for the young men. This is far more than an opinion. This is an established reputation known and declared by many. They're virtuous. That is a good person. That is a good guy. I just want you to know that is one great guy. And when you say those words, and if you're a God-fearing person saying them, you mean that person really fears the Lord. They love Jesus Christ. They, they, they throb after being in the temple of the Lord and worshiping Him. We introduce it this way on our website. To be virtuous is to have great character, a good name. To be wise, prudent, a wonderful person, chaste, highly respected, praiseworthy, accomplished, moral, confident, decent, good, and strong. A virtuous guy or girl will be exceptional. They'll be noble. They'll be prince-like. They'll be guileless-like. Nathaniel. When Nathaniel came to Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. That was strong, high praise about a young man named Nathaniel. And there are young men that grow up in the church of God that we know that are that way. And we should talk about them and we should promote them. And girl, and girls and their fathers should be looking for them. Because that's what you want to marry when you marry someone that's virtuous. Jesus was virtuous. He grew in favor with God and men. Samuel was virtuous. He grew in favor with God and men. Any young man putting the book of Proverbs into practice is going to grow in favor with God and men and be virtuous. Number four, gracious. Gracious. Look at Psalm 112. What a pleasant surprise in studying Psalm 112 for the second or third time in my life. I hope I speak as a fool. I came upon this. Psalm 112 and verse 4, Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. This is how God blesses the upright man. He is gracious. He is gracious. A good man is gracious. You want to marry a gracious man. Gracious is a word that's not used as much as it should be. And we do want to apply it. And I have preached about it before. And you can go to our website and type in graciousness. And you'll find two sermon outlines from over a decade ago. Proverbs 11 and verse 16. Please turn in your Bibles. From Psalm, from Psalm 112 we learned that a righteous man is gracious. We come to Proverbs chapter 11. And we learn that a truly honorable, truly noble princess is gracious. 
So you want to learn everything you can about graciousness. Psalm, I mean, Proverbs, excuse me, the book of Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 16, a gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. A gracious woman retaineth honor. So whatever this graciousness is, if a girl or a woman puts it into practice, she is always going to be esteemed and loved. She's going to retain honor. She's never going to be disrespected. She's always going to be loved. That's just a lovely person. You know, it's just so much pleasure being around them. They're just so lovely. They're so charming. Those are words that we use to convey the concept of graciousness. A gracious woman retaineth honor because she's not going to do things that offend people. She's not going to do things that irritate them. She's not going to have abrasive edges. She's not going to be socially clumsy. She's going to be smooth because she's going to be humble and meek and modest and kind and agreeable and charitable and forgiving. That's graciousness. Condescendingly kind, indulgent and beneficent to inferiors, characterized by kindness, by courtesy, by benevolence, by goodwill. I want to show you an interesting verse. Look at Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22. Graciousness is the most beautifying character trait of a person, whether a man or a woman. It's a precious gift. And it's something that ought to be taught and pursued more than any academic subject or professional accomplishment. It should be so high on what we want to teach our children. And if you need to go study what it is, what is it to be gracious and what is it to be not gracious... There's two outlines on the website for you. Graciousness is the opposite of odious. The word odious is found in Proverbs chapter 30 and describes a hateful woman, just a, a repugnant woman. You just can't stand her. You don't want to be around her because she's going to open her mouth and say something that's just totally ridiculous. They're called odious. So you have odious and you have gracious and you want to learn the one and despise the other and you want to, to whatever degree you need to shift, you need to shift over to being gracious. Look at Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Everybody understands that. A reputation is more important than making a lot of money. And loving favor rather than silver and gold. Loving favor. That is not your loving favor. That is other people's loving favor towards you. Just like the good name is not your idea that you have a good name, but other people thinking you have a good name. How do you win the loving favor of other people? It should be chosen above silver and gold. By being gracious. If you're gracious, you're a woman that will always retain honor. If you're a man and you're gracious, Ecclesiastes 10, 12, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 11, kings are going to promote you to be there by their side. Right there. And loving favor rather than silver and gold. The point that I was making is, we spend so much time and effort and money on getting our children through you know, 12 years of what I'm going to call primary school and you know, then we've got college and so forth. And in all those years and in all those hours and all that effort that's put forth, are we teaching them graciousness so that they know how to mingle, talk, act in public and with other people to always make other people feel good and warm and accepted and secure? That is graciousness. And when you're gracious, loving favor is what comes back to you. So you have a choice from this Proverbs 22 and verse 1. I want to conduct myself in such a way and I'm going to emphasize it more than making money, to have a good reputation, that's a good name, and to have loving favor. I want other people to love being around me because God told me that that's more important than silver and gold. 
You know, it's so easy for a woman to have a business-like attitude. It's so easy for her to be abrasive. It's so easy for her to giggle when she shouldn't. It's so easy for her to be opinionated when she shouldn't. And all those things are not gracious. They're odious. And there are things that you just want to learn. I don't want to do that anymore. And men have to be the same way. Gracious. It's a wonderful thing. We introduce it this way on our website in this looking for a good man. It's courteous, charming, pleasing, polite, kind, condescending courtesy, compassionate, agreeable, thoughtful, sweet, discreet, and gentle. Let's look at another one. Diligent. Number five. I've just given you a few. There's dozens on the website. A few character traits to look after. If you read Proverbs 31, what is the overriding character trait in Proverbs 31? Verse 30 mentions the fear of the Lord. Every other verse is describing what? It starts with D. I've already told you. Diligence. She is a hard, working, industrious Trojan. God never expected women to be sit-at-home pretty people. God never expected women to sit at home watching televangelists, watching soap operas, reading books, being the spiritual leader of the home. Never. No. Dead. Wrong. That's ungodly. That's wickedness. Women are to roll up their sleeves and get up early in the morning and get to work and strengthen their hands. If you've read Proverbs 31, they, she strengthens her hands. She strengthens her loins. She gets up early. She is like the merchant ships. She's creative. She's decorative. She's innovative. She's entrepreneurial. She works hard. It's diligence. When a woman talks about a woman that she wants to have her husband marry, and the woman is inspired, it's about diligence. It's about hard work. Does she have a motor? If a spouse does not have a motor, you will live the rest of your life with things not getting done. The trait that dominates Proverbs 31 is a woman's diligence, her hard work. And so young men, you want to see a girl that works hard. She works hard in school. She works hard in a job. School is not enough to keep anyone busy unless they're mentally handicapped. By itself. You know, when you've got a family and you've got children and you're still going to school, that's a little different. But school by itself doesn't prove diligence. Maybe school and a job proves diligence, but that's really not good enough either. How about school and a job and serves the church and serves mom and dad around the home and does some domestic duties and doesn't think because she's sitting at her desk doodling on her paper with a textbook open that she's working? See, it's diligence because that's what you want to marry. You say you're raising the bar so high. Read Proverbs 31 and think that I've raised the bar high. Read Proverbs 31 sometime without skating over it to get down to verse 30 and say, well, I fear the Lord. I shall be praised forever because all the verses that come in front of 31 are about hard work. And I didn't write it. And I didn't inspire it. And I didn't preserve it. I just preach it. And I won't apologize for it. Diligence. If you marry a woman that's slothful, a woman from England wrote me this past week. Help me. I'm lazy. I hate cleaning the bathroom. She hasn't written me in years. She's very intelligent. I'm having problems in my relationships. I don't want to clean the bathroom. What do I, I don't have any answers for her. There's no silver bullet that I can shoot her with. 
except the Word of God. Right. I said, get yourself an accountability partner and have them come into your place and check your bathrooms and start cleaning them. Get off your duff. And she wanted to ask me about certain books she was reading. I said, give up reading. Reading is a luxury that you don't have. Who said you're supposed to read? Where in the Bible does it say the woman's supposed to sit around and read? If she wants to learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. What should she be doing? Getting those sleeves rolled up and cleaning the restroom. Or whatever needs to be cleaned. Diligence. Oh, young women, find a guy that likes to work hard. Look what your future is going to be. Look at Proverbs 12, 24. Proverbs 12, 24. Don't, don't think about the guy that's cool. Don't think about the guy that comes up to you and smooth talks you. Don't think about the guy that's popular, that all the girls like for whatever stupid reason. Think about this. I want to marry a guy that's diligent. 12.24, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Well, if you marry a guy that's going to bear rule, guess what that's going to make you? It starts with a Q, and of course, in English, the next letter is U, queen. You're going to be a queen because you're going to be married to a guy that's going to rule. He is going to go and be promoted because he's diligent. But the slothful shall be under tribute. You're going to be poor if you don't marry a diligent man. This, this is the Bible telling us how to marry in the Lord and how to marry wisely and how to marry Mr. and Mrs. Wright. Look at verse 27 in the same chapter. The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. You measure boy, girls, you measure boys by them taking care of everything they have. If you should be around when they open up the trunk of their car and that trunk should be clean. That car should be clean inside and out. That car should be maintained. Don't have, let him apologize to you when you reach for the passenger door handle and it comes off in your hand. Everything should be taken care of because the Bible says, The slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. How do I know a boy is precious? I mean, or di- is diligent? Because everything he owns is well taken care of. Because if everything he has is well taken care of, you are going to be well taken care of one day soon, and so will your house be well taken care of, and your automobiles will be well taken care of. Oh, that's the good life. That's Mr. Right. All you got to do is look for a little diligence. 13.4 The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. If you want a fat life with luxuries in your home, then marry a diligent man. Okay, said enough about that. More could be said. More is said in the Bible, for sure, on diligence. Selfless. Have I preached on that recently? Selfless versus selfish? You want to find someone that's selfless. Guys and girls, look for somebody that is only thinking about other people, never thinking about themselves. If a selfless, if a person selflessly serves others, what kind of a spouse are they going to be? (laughs) That means they're going to be thinking about me. That's the kind you want to marry. Close on the contract as fast as you can. This is the second commandment in some respects with the fear of the Lord is all you need. What if you get a person that truly fears God in the way that we've described and is selfless in always thinking about other people? You've got it made. It's so simple to do it the Bible way. So simple to do it God's way. This is the difference between selfish and selfless like I preached to you from Romans 12.10 a couple of weeks ago. A girl or a woman that is selfless is meek and quiet because she doesn't want to put herself forward. She's selfless. She's submissive. She wants you to make the decisions because she's selfless. She's reverent because, after all, she's less. She's selfless. You're what's important. So she's reverent. She's teachable 
because I probably don't know what's right. Just tell me what's right. I want to be teachable. I want to do it God's way. Just show me from the Bible and I'll do it. That's quite perfect. Where did that come from? She's selfless. Find a woman that has a butt. When you meet a girl that says butt, if the word B-U-T comes out of her mouth, I'm just warning you. If it comes out once, be warned. If it comes out a couple times, get away from her. All she's going to do the rest of your life is but, 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 but. She isn't selfless. She's selfish. She wants to press what she thinks are valuable opinions on you when the Bible says her desires are to be your desires. Hate but. Teachable, godly, meek and quiet women don't say but any more than good employees say but to their boss. In Titus 2, 9 and 10 when it says they don't answer again. Do you know how the woman will explain herself? If I were to call her name right now, or her names, and have them stand up in this assembly and tell them what they do to their husbands, they'll say, well, I had a pretty good idea, and I just wanted to help. You sinned against the Lord by opening your mouth. It doesn't matter that you think you wanted to help. That is not how God made you to help your husband. God made you to help your husband by being quiet and doing what he wanted to have done. You say, well, if I did it his way, the car might run out of oil. Let the car run out of oil. It'd be better for your husband to have an engine repaired than to have a woman that is butt-butt-butting all the time. You're not a loving wife. The poor man's got perfume on his right hand that berates himself every time he goes in public because you can't keep your mouth shut from your stupid ideas, and we all think they're stupid. You're the only one that thinks they're good. I know I'm so harsh. But you know why? I've only got a few minutes. Can you allow a little harshness? You know, add a little bit of water when you go home, dilute it just a little tiny bit. Like you do, we'd be gone. But I have a few minutes. And when it says selfless, I want to tell you what it means. You want a guy that is selfless. How do you tell that a guy's selfless? He loves his sisters and his brothers. He has sibling love that beats all other guys. He loves his mother. He kisses his mother. He loves his dad. He's always thinking about other people. He loves little children. He doesn't stand around and play pocket pool with buddies his age. He's looking out for children in the congregation. He's, he's caring about older people in the congregation. He's selfless. When you find a person that's selfless like that and you get locked up into a marriage with them, guess who's going to be the beneficiary of his selflessness? You are. And guess what that is? That is wise selfishness by marrying him. One more. There's so many that we could go through, and the Bible teaches all of these. Does the Bible teach that we ought to make other people more important than ourselves? Did I preach that to you under the two words selfish or selfless? That's what you should marry. One more, temperate. I picked temperate to make it number seven. Could have had 70. Seven, temperate. What does temperance mean? It's taught in the Bible. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Temperance is Self-discipline, self-control, moderation, not swayed by passions. It's gentle, it's mild, it's forbearing and forgiving. It's self-controlled, especially in the regard to indulging appetites or moods or feelings. Temperance is self-control. So you want to marry somebody that has themselves under control, that is self-disciplined, that is moderate, that doesn't go off into extremes, that doesn't go off into extremes verbally, that doesn't go off into extremes in moods. It doesn't go off to extremes in choices, but they're moderate and they're self-controlled and they're disciplined because that person will be consistent and constant and that's what you want to be married to. This person rules their spirit, their mood, their words, and their conduct and brings everything under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27 said that all entrants run in a race, but only one wins the prize. And what does it take to be a professional athlete and to win the prize? They are temperate in all things. They are self-controlled and disciplined in every part of their life. So you want to look for a temperate young man or a young woman. Moody men. Men that do not control their moods are intemperate. Get away from them. They'll ruin your life. Drama queens will ruin your life. Get away from them. They will not rule their spirits. I'm talking about moody men. I'm talking about drama queens. They will not rule their spirits. And if they won't rule their spirits, when they're in the courting stage of presenting themselves to other unmarried people, do you know what it's going to be like at home where they can let their hair down? then your life is ruined because you married an intemperate person that doesn't rule their spirit. The Bible says that a person that doesn't rule their spirit is like a city with the wall broken down, meaning anybody can come in and take that city. They're exposed to any sin. Moody men or drama queens do not deserve spouses, for the pain of living with them is not worth it. Let them be single and see if their drama will work on themselves or their moods will work on themselves. You know, when a moody person corrupts the pleasure of the rest of the family by not ruling their mood, it's a horrible thing. God doesn't care how you get your wife. God doesn't think courting is any better than dating. God doesn't think dating is any better than arranged marriages. God doesn't think that arranged marriages are any better than just hiding in the bushes and reaching in and grabbing one. Where was the dance that took place where God told 400 Benjamites to hide in the bushes? And when the daughters of I need an S word. When the daughters of Shiloh came out to dance, they were just to spot a good looking one and reach out and grab one. Is that biblical? It's in the Bible. Because it doesn't matter. If you marry somebody in a church where they fear God and the rules of marriage and the rules against divorce are all well known, then all you have to do really is just reach out of the bushes and grab one and take her home. You know, arranged marriages weren't much different Two daddies got together and said, I like your son, I like your daughter. You know, here's what I'll pay for your daughter. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to get a new Harley. Um, it's a deal. And so you pack their suitcases and you let them meet at their apartment and they walk in and, hi, hi. What do we do now? Well, let's go furniture shopping. You know, when they start their married life, you say, that's just ridiculously crazy. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's two people based on God-fearing families that were put together and said, why don't you make a life of it? And they learn how to love each other inside the marriage. You say, well, I like it the way I did it better. That's okay. I just want to tell you, it can work the other way. And it worked in God's church that way. Because you're going to end up with this little saying that the world uses in a totally different way from what we use it. Love the one you're with. You know, every, you, all of you are going to go home right now, and you've already made the choice of who you're married to, but you ought to, you ought to be looking at it as if you've just been put into an arranged marriage because it's true. God has arranged for your spouse to be yeah. your spouse. And you should go home today thinking about sitting in the car. God put that woman in here with me alone, and no chaper- except the kids, <laughs> no chaperones. I'm going to love her because the Bible says to love the one you're with. Right. It says to love the wife that God gave you. It says to love the house the husband that God gave you. God doesn't care how you get them. That isn't the issue. Some people put so much issue on how you go about it and 
how you have to talk to somebody first and do it in this order. The Bible doesn't say any one of those things whatsoever. That is all man-made. doesn't matter. What matters is the woman that you bring home to present to your parents or the guy that you introduce your father to start thinking about or that, the, or that the father introduces for you to start thinking about should be the one that fears the Lord and has these character traits that the Bible teaches and there's many more. Young, young men and young women, will you listen to me for just a moment? If you've never been married and you're in this assembly and you hear my voice, I don't care what age you are, fully humble yourself to your parents and wise counselors in this church. They will save you from trouble. Why would you ever go ask a school counselor for something as ridiculously unimportant as a degree program? Why would you ever go ask a bank loan officer for something as ridiculously unimportant as your business plan. But you will not dissect marriage candidates with wise counselors. When you meet somebody that you're the least bit interested in, tell some wise counselors about it and sit down and dissect them. Pull them apart to see if they really fear the Lord, if there's evidence for that. You will go to school counselors and meet with them and say, what, what should I do? Well, I think you need to take this course and this course and get a degree in this and then go try to find a job in that field. Okay. Then you go to a bank loan officer. This is what I would like to do. What do you think? I think that's pretty good. We'll loan you the money. Thank you. But you won't take to your parents and say, this is a person that I found. I don't have any feelings for them yet. What do you think? Mom and Dad, what do you think? You get some counselors. I'll help you dissect them. I know you probably won't want to come to me, but I do want you to be happily married. I'm just not going to be very cooperative with your ideas of compatibility and stuff. I'm going to want to go after their fear of the Lord, and I will help you find out very fast if they fear the Lord or not. It, it just amazes me how much we'll ask in other questions of our lives. Right. What, if you make the wrong, what if you make a decision with a school counselor and you get a degree in a field that you find out later isn't your preferred field? Who cares? That's half, that's half the church sitting in this room. It doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. Do you have a degree in cinema? Do you have a degree in cinema? Are you kidding me? But we don't. But we don't want to expose this person to the eyes of others at an early stage, and so we get emotionally bonded to them. And you young people, I'm begging you for your happiness to hold it off and take them to your parents. The advantages of a father. The advantages of a father to give wise counsel about marrying the right woman. A father has more marital experience with a woman than young people you even have experience at living. A father is not emotionally involved with the girl, so love being blind, he can see clearly. To judge based on evidence. A father is not a stick of testosterone. So he can make a calm and sober decision based on evidence, which you can't. A father loves his son with protective parental care, which the son cannot grasp, and you're only going to learn later when you're a father. A father has both eyes looking to his son's future, but you young men, you can't see past the pleasure you might get today from this girl, or vice versa. 
A father has more knowledge about marriage, love, and sex than his son has forgotten on all subjects from all the years he has lived beyond his son's life. A father has a charge from God to obey the Lord and protect his children from bad marriages. A father has experienced, witnessed, and shared in marital pain of others. His son cannot see or know that marital pain yet. A father has not dated the girl, so he is not foolishly thinking about that getting married is dating with sex. He's not so foolish. A father measures a girl by the woman she will be, but the son can only see the girl in her outfit today. A father loves his son more and different than his wife will ever love him, so the son should trust him. A father looks for the odious woman because he's scared of her. He knows the risk, and the son will often miss her because the Bible says in Solomon's wisdom, said in Proverbs 30, an odious woman when she is married. Before she is married, a woman can hide her odiousness and deceive men into marrying her. That was a little list that I could, I could elaborate on each of those points, that a father has the advantage, and I want you children to trust your fathers and to bring a prospect to them before you get emotionally involved or other counselors in the church with your parents' permission. Parents, Parents that have children or youth, what are you doing to set the table and guarantee a future of godly marriages for your family? You can be teaching the desirable traits every day with them. As soon as they have a few years under their belt, you can start talking about who, who is a nice person, who is a good person, and measuring them. You can mark those of the opposite sex, their age or older, or even married, as examples of a perfect spouse. You can encourage Young friendships to keep their eyes on those in the Lord rather than those of the world. If you do not make your family and the children attractive and desirable for marriage, they're going to be ignored. If you hinder or end a possible marriage for your child to a God-fearing spouse, you're playing with fire. You better have some awfully overriding reasons for slowing down your children when they like someone that meets all the qualifications. Are you giving your children plenty of hope on this front while we cut off so much of their social life with the worldlings around us? No matter what your marital state in the church is, join with all of us to pray and to help and to encourage and to warn that we might have more godly marriages in this church. Amen. Mary Wright. Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright, may the Lord bless each of you. Daniel, thank you for your prayer. Daniel, thank you for telling the young people of this church to be content and patient with your situation right now. The more desirable you make yourself and the more desirable you are to God, the more you delight in the Lord, the faster he'll bring you a spouse. The Bible says, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord, guys and girls, the Lord will give you a wonderful spouse. Sherry and I used this verse when we were single. It's Psalm 84 and verse 11. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. If you'll walk uprightly, God won't withhold any good thing from you. Everything that I've talked about today that is good, that you need, that would result in a happy life, God will provide it if you'll live a righteous and upright life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.